Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff. I teach astronomy and physics at Western Washington University, and I'm not ashamed to say I know very little about gravitational waves. We are lucky enough to learn about this groundbreaking physics from Corey Gray, who's the lead operator at the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO as we will be saying it from now on, in Hanford, Washington. He was there at the start, and he's an awesome science communicator. He was featured on NPR recently because of his expertise and also because of the project he's doing with his mother. They are currently translating LIGO press releases into Blackfoot. So let's find out more about gravitational waves and when they were detected. Corey, welcome to our show. And we're going to talk about uh, what's, what does LIGO stand for and what is your position at LIGO? Okay, first off, LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. The LIGO project consists of two gravitational wave detectors or observatories. One is in uh, Louisiana near Baton Rouge. The second observatory is just over the mountains from you, kind of near the Tri-Cities, and this is the LIGO Hanford Observatory. And here, my position is a lead operator for the operator team that we have. Uh, the operators are the, basically the the people who drive the machine when we're collecting data. So I'm the lead operator at the LIGO Hanford Observatory. There's been a lot of talk in the news about like what are gravitational waves and I kind of want to give our listeners and our viewers uh, the best maybe summary of what a gravitational wave is first before we kind of get into how you got into this position. So my background is I only had a bachelor's of science in physics a long time ago so I've kind of had to learn the big the big ideas of science just kind of on my own and how to explain it uh, because I, I was hired to help basically help build this machine. So everything for us starts from Albert Einstein and his general theory of relativity. And when he uh, released that to the world, uh, that was back in 1915 in Berlin. And the crux of it or the big things that are related to LIGO are just how he came up with a completely different way of explaining how gravity works. And so instead of uh, objects being attracted to each other via a force uh, from Sir Isaac Newton, Einstein described gravity as how matter affects the space around it. So all objects bend the space around them depending on how big or how, how uh, dense they are with their mass. And so if you just take a star or you take a planet, they're gonna bend the space around them. And then that's kind of a static example. But if you take it the next level, what happens if you move that object in space? If you move that object that's warping the space around it, it's gonna actually wiggle the space around it as well. So instead of just warping the space around it, if you move that object, it's gonna generate these wiggles in the space around it. And those wiggles are what gravitational waves are. For the most part, space is a very stiff medium. So you need to have very large objects accelerating in space to be able to observe them. If you're a black hole, if you had a, a big heavy object like a black hole or a neutron star, if you accelerated them in space, they're gonna generate big wiggles or big gravitational waves and their effects would be very violent and those waves would actually destroy you. <laughs> but because of the, the nature of these waves and because these types of events are so, so far away, 
if, if you do the math, the amplitude of the size of those wiggles become monumentally small by the time they, they reach us, where the earth is in our universe. And so Einstein did that work. He went through the math of calculating a, a certain type of source, he, two stars, and then looked at how big the waves they would generate as these two stars crashed into each other. When he did it like on the back of an envelope some um, way back in 1916, the size of those waves were just so, so tiny that he just thought that there's never gonna be a chance that they would ever be detected. But things have changed since 1916. So different sources have been conceived, like ideas of bigger heavy objects such as black holes and neutron stars. So sources have gotten a lot bigger and more violent. And, and so they make bigger splashes in space time. And then just technology has also improved in the last century as well. And so both of those different paths have, have gotten us to a point where a century later, the first gravitational wave detections were directly detected back in 2015. So yeah, close to a century after Einstein conceived this whole thing. I, I, I really like that description. And I think that later on, we'll kind of get into this difficulty imagining as humans, imagining this idea of a gravitational wave because as a physics professor we kind of play around with like elastic right and like some elastic sheet or or something like you know a trampoline material and you kind of have some heavy object in the middle of your trampoline and yes you know you you throw a marble and it looks like it's orbiting around this you know really really heavy spherical object in the middle of the trampoline and, and we kind of use this analogy but you have this two-dimensional analogy have to extrapolate that to three dimensions of reality, which is, I was talking to my 10 year old and she, I was, she was asking about black holes and I was like, well, it's something that rips through reality. I like that. And she's like, what? <laughs> so we'll come back to these analogies that physicists use. And, totally. and I want to ask you about the interferometer too, because as a physics professor, explaining what an interferometer is, which what you're saying is your observing tool, it's not trivial to explain that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. So we'll come back to that. But so for our listeners, don't worry, we're going to come back to that science. But I like to ask every single scientist the same question. So you're, you're working on these revolutionary things in science. What made you want to do this? Like as a child, was there an event that were like science? You know, why did you, why did you study physics? Why did you go into this field? I guess role models play, played a part for me and my experience. Um, my father was uh, a self-taught electrical engineer, so he was my first role model. But I guess when I was in high school, one of my heroes was a TV character by the name of MacGyver. And was, he was a character who was into to physics and tried to solve a lot of things without violence or weapons. And, and he used his mind and he had, a, yeah, he had a degree in physics. And so I wanted to be like a, a Native American MacGyver. And so that was my first, I think, I think that's how I, that's where my path started with physics. So when you got into physics, what surprised you and what didn't surprise you? Like as you got into your undergrad, first, where'd you go? But two, when you went into it, like, were there things that you weren't expecting? I, it was just in, intimidating. I always knew it would be intimidating. I knew it was, it would be hard. So those, that wasn't a surprise. I went to a small state school in Northern California called Humboldt State University. And, and, and I'm really glad I did that because it's a, it was a very it's a small university. So that made uh, just interactions with the professors really good and the other students, just the classes were pretty small. So as far as surprises, yeah, that's a good question. A lot of negative things that I experienced was, was just in my own head, just uh, knowing that I'm pursuing something that's hard and always questioning myself, should I keep doing this? Can I still do it? 
and then not seeing people who are like me, like not seeing other Native Americans in physics. And so, but yeah, so I think those are the things that were always going through my head. Just maybe, am I ever going to graduate? Just those fears, I, I guess, that I had as an undergrad. Those, those were the main thoughts that I had. Yeah. But, but you eventually got this position at, at LIGO. And, and was this one of your first positions related to physics? out of school. Yeah, this was my first job right, right after graduating. I did have several internships. And so when I talk to students or when I do outreach trips or big thing, I always try to tell students it's just the importance of internships because those are the first experiences I had working in uh, in science and, uh, and two of them were physics related. So in, internships are important. And then, yeah, this was basically my first job that I I think it was the second job I applied for one summer after graduating. I've been here since 1998, so <laughs> I've been here a long time. Was there somebody that was instrumental in helping you like get this job, getting those internships? Because I mean, you can always say like get internships, but like the path to do that is hard. I know, I wish I had a better answer. I wish I had, I could say that I had a mentor because I know that a lot of students I meet nowadays, they do have a better, a network of mentors. Uh, I didn't really have that. I, I learned a little bit about certain or organizations such as, as SACNIS, which is the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science. There's a similar uh, group called ACES, which is for Na Native Americans in Science. Mm -hmm. And those organizations have uh, conferences where they have like career fairs or exhibit halls where you get the opportunity to meet a, a wide variety of universities and just other types of exhibitors and get ideas for careers, internship or summer research opportunities. And so I guess those networks, those organizations are a big thing. I remember my first semester away from home in Southern California, being up in Humboldt by myself. I don't know if I had tears out of coming out of my eyes, but I was kind of at a point where I was like on the phone with my mom and saying, I don't know if I could just be here anymore. Around that time when I was thinking of just moving back home, that's when I found this group called Intercept. And it's, it was just a science organization for natives. They saved me because they were like another family and they introduced me to those other uh, networks that I talked about, ACES and SACNIS. And so organizations like that, I think were very important for me uh, with my collegiate experience. And then also a, a little bit with the, the re summer research and then also finding my job as well. Welcome back to Spark Science, where we're talking about gravitational waves with Corey Gray, lead operator at LIGO in Hanford, Washington. I went to school here at Western in the 90s, in 1999, and I remember there was an alumni that was talking about LIGO, and they were like, any day now we're going to find a gravitational wave. And then really? I, and then I went to uh, Wazoo for my PhD, and I remember there's definitely a connection with LIGO at Wazoo, Washington State University, because they're close to Hanford. And they're they're like any day now, <laughs> you know, you know, this is in two thousand six, you know, two thousand five, and but what I'm saying is that it was such a new thing. You got this job in nineteen ninety eight, but this idea of detecting this like mythical gravitational yeah. wave, it was such a big thing. It was so exciting, and they people kept their excitement for over a decade of just like with nothing to prove for it. But they were just like, it's gonna happen any day now. That's what I remember. <laughs> So what what do you remember from the beginning? Because you were there basically when they were it was growing. So like, what was what was it like at the beginning of this thing that was so new? 
So you knew more than I did about LIGO because back in 98, I had no real idea about what LIGO was or what it did. I did look in my astronomy undergrad text and there's a, just a small paragraph about gravitational waves and that was it. Mm -hmm. So it was totally new to me. So my job was just an excuse or a way to get out of Southern California. <laughs> so it, it was, a, it, I just saw the job announcement for, uh, from Caltech up in Washington state. It sounded like a really cool opportunity. I didn't know much about it. And so when 1997 is when the ground broke, or that's when both observatories construction was complete. And so I got here around that time. And for both observatories, they were now having operations and now they were hiring people to help basically build the first detector that we had. And so I got to be in on uh, that part of the project. And that was probably the first five years, uh, I don't know, three to five years was focused on a lot of, you know, kind of manual labor. I mean, learning how to drive a forklift, operate an overhead crane, learning about torque values for <laughs> certain types of screws, learning a lot of hands-on things. So that's what I learned. My, my job was very focused. I mean, we were very schedule oriented. We had a lot of deadlines that we had to keep to. And so that was the first few years. That phase of LIGO was called initial LIGO. So that was the first detector we made. And it was mainly a kind of a proof of concept type of situation. So we just wanted to build this huge complex machine and then see if it could uh, see if it could run. Yeah, around 2002, that's when we turned it on, initial LIGO. And then off and on, we would uh, collect data. Back then we called them science runs. That's when we would have both of our machines, Louisiana and Washington, collecting data. And we would go, uh, you know, it'd be three months at a time or six months. There was one time where we did a couple of years. And then we take breaks and work on the machine to try to improve its sensitivity. Through all those years of data that we collected, there was no detections that were made. But then we turned off the machine in 2010. And then that is when we built Advanced LIGO. So it's we use the same vacuum system. So the base, the same basic shell for the detector was used, the same infrastructure or vacuum system. Everything was gutted out out of initial LIGO. And then we spent the next five years assembling and installing all the hardware for advanced LIGO, so 2010 to 2015. So an interferometer, it's not a new setup. It's not a new type of, I say machine or detector. It's, it's, a, it's an optical setup that's over a century old. And it, very simply, it's just a, the light hits the beam splitter. The splitter splits the light into these two twin waves that move down paths that are perpendicular to each other. So what you have is a big L-shaped path that both those beams go down, and then they hit a mirror, which could be either inches away, or in our case, it could be four kilometers away, hits that mirror, and then that wave returns back. For our machine, it resonates in these four kilometer long arms, but eventually the light from both of those twin waves recombine with each other and interfere with each other. And then the output of that interference is what you look at with an interferometer. The thing that's, that's really good or why interferometers are so good for what we're doing is that with those mirrors that you have at the end of the arms, any tiny minute little changes that they make we can see very easily at the output or where the sensor is or where your eye is, that whatever way you're looking at the output, you could see very tiny effects very easily at the output of it. And that's why interferometers are so 
kind of catered for looking for these tiny signals called gravitational waves. Right. So, th th I mean, basically, there's this interference between these two light sources, and you're saying that what we see on, on that screen, that interference, that pattern, is affected by the movement of those mirrors at the end of those paths. Yeah, I also like to think of as think of interferometers as like a ruler, because mm -hmm. all we're do, doing is looking at length changes in that that four kilometer the the arm the arm distances. So from here to four kilometers down either arm I'm looking at, we can resolve a length difference which is a thousand times smaller than a proton diameter. That, that's how sensitive these machines are, and and we need that sensitivity because. Gravitational waves are so far, they're on the other side of the universe and by the time they pass right through the earth, they're super, super tiny and that's why we need this very sensitive ruler. Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking with Corey Gray, lead operator at the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So just to kind of explain to our, our listeners, why are those two mirrors changing distance? What are we measuring, right? Yeah, so when the, the gravitational waves pass through the universe, uh, as they're moving through, there's violent events happening all the time. And these waves are passing through the earth at the speed of light all the time. But we just haven't had an instrument that's sensitive enough to uh, sense their effects. So when a wave passes through the earth, what's, what it's gonna do is actually change the distance in each of the arms just very minutely. And those mirrors at the end of the arms are gonna move depending on what type of wave is vibrating them or what type of violent event on the other side of the universe is vibrating them. And so when a wave passes through the earth, it passes right through our detector and it moves our mirrors in a certain way that we would see that wave form or that wiggle with our detector, that's the output of our machine. Right, and so we have these two detectors, one in Louisiana, one in Washington, because we wanna see that same wave going through two different points, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. You wanna see the same wave signature, the same, the same identical signal on both of our machines, because if you just had one machine, if we just had the one here in Washington, there could be other things that move our machines. I mean, there's trucks that drive by our observatory. There's earthquakes on the other side of the planet. <laughs> Anything magnitude five-ish wiggles our mirrors around. Storms out in the Pacific or in the North Atlantic also move our machine as well. And so there's all these other noise sources that move our machines certain ways. The, the beauty of having multiple detectors is that if you see a certain wave pattern on one machine and you also see it on the other one, that's going to give you an idea that what you saw was not local and it was uh, cosmic in nature. So we have Washington and Louisiana here. The signal that they both see has to be within 0 0.010 seconds or, or 10 milliseconds. And that's because gravitational waves move at the speed of light. So if you have a signal that's seen within that window, then that's a good likelihood that it was maybe cosmic in nature. You also have to do more analysis to it. And then the other thing is that with both of our machines, we have supercomputers that look at the data that both machines output pretty much in real time. So that within about two to three minutes, if so if they see a signal on both, they're gonna look at all these templates that are different types of waveforms for different types of sources. So there's thousands of different digital fingerprints of possible events that 
could be what we see on our machines. And, and, and the analogy I like is like with my phone, one of my most favorite apps is uh, one of the music or song recognition apps. So like Shazam. What Shazam has is, is it has all of these templates of, of a song. So it's like a digital fingerprint. It uses the microphone as its sensor and it takes that data from the microphone and then matches that to all of these templates of songs over the, the last century. That's kind of what happens with LIGO and then the supercomputers that analyze our data and matches the songs of theoretical types of sources to the actual data from that real sources that we might record. It's funny because my brain instantly went to the negative, right? I'm like, I'm looking for those sources that are definitely not what we're looking for, like little earthquakes, cars. And then when I asked the question, your mind went right to the positive, um, which is like, hey, we have these models for what we want to detect. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but you need both, right? You need the things that you know aren't the detections and you need templates for the things that are most likely going to be two neutron stars orbiting and colliding or two black holes or something like that. Yeah, the, the types of detections that we've made so far have been uh, from binary systems. So uh, we've had a total of 11 detections. 10 of them have been from binary black holes. So two black holes that are orbiting each other for millions of years. And it's only at the very last fraction of a second where you get the biggest burst of gravitational waves that the signal is loud enough to move both of our, mach our machines. And so the templates that we make are just focused on that last second, right when the merger happens. And so those templates get matched to, to our data. And then I, I also forgot that the, the other detection that we've had is two neutron stars. So the, everything that we've detected so far has been about binary systems, so two objects orbiting and crashing into each other, merging into each other. And, and like you said earlier, really, really massive binary objects. Yes, yeah. I just gave a TED Talk uh, uh, recently, and one of the stories that I liked, or that I, I didn't even really think about, was one that happened kind of a couple of years before that first detection happened. At that point, my mindset was that I was very focused on our, the specific tasks I had. One summer, which I think was 2011, I went for a hike with a friend who was also a coworker, grad student from MIT. And as we were on the trail hiking up to a mountain, I remember just to make conversation, I asked him, so how likely do you think it'll be that we'll make a detection? And without skipping a beat, he said, oh, we're, within the first year after we turn on the machine, we're going to make at least two or three detections. I mean, and he just didn't hesitate at all. And he just said, yes, we're going to totally make a detection. And, uh, and he went into the statistics about it. And that's kind of when he started losing me. And that's when I started losing my breath because of just thinking about that. That's when I thought of the bigger picture. I think that was the first time I really had the thought of, wow, this might actually happen in my lifetime. So <laughs> I still didn't know, but that was, I think, the first time I thought that oh, this could maybe happen. So fast forward, you know, just three or four years after that. Yeah, that's when our, our lives all changed here and because that's when we had our first detection. And there's going to be more, right? Because like you said, that it shuts down sometimes and then you modify things. You At LIGO, you're trying to make things, uh, this detection, your observatory more and more sensitive. And the press release that came out in December says that this spring, we're going to turn it on again and it's going to be even more sensitive. So there should be even more detection. That is the hope, yeah. So uh, that's why we're busy right now. So we have just a few more weeks until we uh, return to observing so, or collecting data because we've been off since or September 2017. So now we're at a point where we have both of LIGO's detectors. We also There's another separate uh, observatory in Italy, Virgo. And so all three of these detectors are ready to go online and collect data. And because of the sensitivity improvements, uh, we expect the rates to increase for, for the number of detections we make. So 
that'll be exciting. It'll be cool to see the new detections. Maybe there'll be different types. I mean, there's uh, other sources that are out there. There's supernova explosions. And then there's things that we just don't even really have an idea about. That's what I, we hope for. It's just the, the big surprise is that it'll be just something that we had no idea about. So that will be exciting. And then just the frequency. We're going to have a lot more detections because of the reach that, that's going to be made possible by the improved sensitivity. We're going to be able to reach farther out in the universe. There's going to be some that are orbiting. And when is that going to happen? I think that's on, on the order of decades. So I don't know if it's 10 to 20 years for when they have these satellites that'll be millions of miles apart from each other and uh, just looking at a different window of frequencies versus what we look at. I want to kind of pivot just really quickly into the press releases that come out of LIGO. You had said, or somebody else had told me that your mother actually translates them. Can you talk more about that and how we're, we're trying to expand this idea of LIGO, not just to like an elite group of people, but to let everyone know about it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I think of everything, I mean, the, being a part of this project has been very cool and just the work that I've gotten to do, I'm proud of that. But I think the thing I'm most proud of is to actually have had the opportunity to work with my mother. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it started with that first detection. So that first detection was, oh, I should show you my tattoo. This is the first detection, actually. Oh, so wow. you what the beta looks like. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a still of this and put it on our Instagram so that our, our listeners can at least see it. Yeah, so that detection happened on um, September 14th, 2015. We took five months to finally announce it. So we had to make sure the signal was real. We had to write a paper and then we uh, needed to think about how we would share it with the world. And so we, uh, two weeks before we announced in February 2016, the idea of the press release came out and how we wanted to share it in as many languages as possible. And just because I'm my mom's son and, and I, I know the importance of language to her, that the idea of translating that scientific document into an indigenous language was just something I thought of. And so uh, we were under embargo at that time, that five months, we couldn't say anything about this crazy, exciting thing in our lives. But two weeks before, I was able to ask permission to see if my mom could see that press release before we announced. And they were, the other LIGO people uh, that I work with were totally excited. And they said, of course, you could totally do that. Me and my mom are Blackfoot or Siksika. That's a tribe in Southern Alberta. And my mom is a speaker, so she's fluent. She's made a dictionary for, for us, her kids. Oh, and wow. she spent about a week or two working on translating this, I think about a two-page press release into Blackfoot. And she got help from other family members. And uh, a lot of words can be translated word for word, but there's other words that there there's no Blackfoot uh, translation. So she had to become kind of a poet of astrophysics and come up with these Blackfoot words like gravitational waves or general theory of relativity. She came up with words for that in our language. Really a linguist. Like she, yeah. like she should like basically get a degree because that's like a dissertation, right? Of like <laughs> Exactly. No, totally. Yeah. So the, her work is cool. And then uh, she's translated several other press releases since then. And like I said, I, I didn't think of it at the time, but just to have the opportunity to work with your mother was something that somebody mentioned that to me. And I was like, oh, wow, that is a, kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And last June, me and my mom actually presented at an indigenous language conference. And so that was kind of cool to get to give a talk with my mom. And, and she was definitely the star of the show. <laughs> I, I mean, that's really heartwarming that you got to work with your mom and you got to spread your culture and, and like actually have it acknowledged by LIGO, like you just said, that they were like all for it. 
along those same lines, I think what you're trying to do with your mom is kind of show that science isn't just for one group of people. In your experience, I mean, you were talking about MacGyver. Is there any other people or ways in which science is represented in popular culture that you like or that you don't like that has been happening lately? Maybe related to black holes or gravitational waves or any, anything. I, I have so many heroes that that are just coming out. I mean, there's there's a lot of other physicists that I think are just doing amazing things. And it's not just the work they're doing, but just for them being out there and, and doing the work that they're doing. There's other native physicists. LIGO has about 1,200 members. And for most of the 17 years that I've been here, I was the only native. <laughs> there's a grad student at Caltech who's Navajo. So that now I have, there's another native person who's a member of the, the project. There's just heroes like that, just being able to... Uh, as a youth, be able to see people who are like you, I think is just such an important thing. And I can name off all, all of my other heroes, but that's one thing. So just seeing re representation improving is, is a huge thing. I like movies. I like just seeing things in movies that maybe inspire me. I'm, I'm sure they inspire others, but the movie Contact is one that is a, a favorite of mine. And just to have the main protagonist be a female and be just so inspiring and smart and just like a total hero and runs that whole that whole story, I think is also an important thing as well. So I think popular culture and then also in science to be able to have that representation improving and seeing more diversity and in, in roles in, in, in both of those areas is a huge thing. Well, and I, and I think your mom translating these press releases and LIGO being open to translating it into as many languages as they possibly can is, it, it, I think in my personal opinion, it shows our scientific culture being more open at least to have these conversations. Thank you so much for talking to us and calling in and good luck with all the data coming in. It's gonna be a flood. Yes, yes, that's the hope. We want to thank Corey Gray for sharing his time and helping us learn about gravitational waves, and we hope to speak to him again soon. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and created in partnership with KMRE. Spark Science is recorded on location and in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barber DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Sarah Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow. Thanks for joining us, and if you want to listen to past episodes, visit SparkScienceNow.com. <laughs>